You know, this year I'm thankful for a lot of things. You know, Thanksgiving is Thursday, right? Is that Thursday? I asked a friend this week, I said, do you have any Thanksgiving plans? He said, yes, be thankful, eat food. And I said, that sounds about it. That sounds like a good plan. But I've got a lot to be thankful for, and I think that you do too. I think that this year we've seen God bring us through all kinds of stuff. But he's brought us through. Amen. We're here today. We're alive today. We're worshiping God today. We're in his house, surrounded by his people, in his presence. We have a lot to be thankful for this year. But one thing that I'm particularly thankful for is I'm thankful for our worship team at Destiny Church. These are some awesome people of God, servants, servants of God to serve uh, the body of Christ each and every week. And what you see them doing right now is packing up because when they leave, they're going to leave right now. And it's not because they don't want to hear me preach. They're leaving because after the second service, after they're done, every single Sunday, they go get in the van and get in the car and they drive 60 miles north to Fredericksburg to lead worship at our two o'clock service in Fredericksburg. And their, their dedication to lead people into God's presence is just awesome. And I'm thankful for them. They get here at like eight in the morning and they're just serving. They're just giving of their time because they love the Lord and they love God's people. And we are the benefactors. We are the better for it. So let's give them another hand this morning. We love them. Open with me in your Bibles. Do you have your Bibles this morning? Anybody have a Bible anymore in 2020? I know we're all digital these days. If you got your Bible, hold, hold, let me see those Bibles. Oh, what a beautiful sight. Oh, I love the Word of God. What a beautiful sight, the Bible, the Word of God. Amen. You know, when you open this book, the devil shakes. He trembles. He, he has to leave in fear because this is the truth, and it confronts him in all his lies. You know, this morning, uh, my wife Heather is at home, uh, my wife of... 12 years. We celebrated our anniversary yesterday. So, um, yeah, we made it 12 years. One more year. Um, anyway, uh, she's at home with one of our children. Uh, Faith is, is not feeling well. She's sick this morning, but Judah still came and he got a ride this morning with one of his great uncles, not great uncle, but an uncle who is great brought him this morning. And so I saw Judah getting out of the car this morning and he came out and when he got out of the car he was holding his bible and i said oh what a sight to see oh that made his daddy happy now will he open it and read it probably not but just the fact that my son is coming to church with his bible that means he's got a good mama at home uh but anyway um you know I'm going to get to a message. I've got a message. It's really good. We're going to get to it in a second. Um, I think it's important for God's people to, to have a Bible, a physical Bible. I'm not laying this on anybody as some sort of legalistic thing. Certainly, we can read God's Word on our phones, and, and I'm thankful for that. I, I use the phone. I use the computer. 
I, I use this stuff for God's word more than I use it for anything else. But there's just something about opening up the book and the pages and, and getting familiar with this friend that we call the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we'll give you a Bible. Okay, when you leave today, stop by the table in the back. We'll give you a Bible because every Christian needs a Bible. You know, we put the verses up on the screen. I hope they're helpful for you. But sometimes I, sometimes I wonder if, if that's a hindrance because we're just sitting there kind of lazy and we're, we're just being um, spoon-fed a little bit of milk and we don't even know how to navigate our Bibles anymore because we're just so accustomed to the verses on the screen. Let me encourage you to bring your Bible to church and to open the Word of God and to read your Bible in church. It will be a blessing to you. I promise you that. Okay, that's my little soapbox uh, this morning. Uh, Acts chapter 20 is where we are today. And before we get to that, I, I just want to update you on our missions offering that we're in the process of of taking right now, of raising. You know, typically we have a missions conference the third week of January uh, because of safety concerns and health concerns and COVID and all this stuff. We prayed about it. We felt like we were the best thing to do was to not have the conference in 2021. But instead, we're still raising an offering to send to our missionaries. And so our goal that we're raising, uh, we started this, I don't know if, four weeks ago or so, and we're completed the third week of January in about eight weeks. Our goal for the offering is $25,000, and I'm happy to report to you today that so far, 13979 has come in. So let's give the Lord a hand clap for that. Many of you get made pledges towards that. Even if you didn't make a pledge, I would encourage everyone to give towards that at some level as God has blessed us. It's right and good that we would be a blessing uh, to the nations and to our missionaries this year. Okay, Acts chapter 20. We're continuing on with Paul's missionary journey. This is his now, this is his third missions journey. He's been on it for about three years. And he, was, he has been doing ministry in Ephesus, Asia Minor, for three years. The gospel has gone out to the whole region. The gospel is touching, changing lives. It's changing the community of Asia Minor, which had been a historically idolatrous community. But as people turned from idolatry to Christ, they quit buying idols and even the idol makers are going out of business. That's how impacted the community was. And I think that the gospel should have an impact in a community. Amen. That there should be a visible demonstration of the kingdom of God as people are turning from darkness and turning to Christ who is the light. And that's what we're seeing happening in Ephesus. Last week we saw these idol makers got very mad. They started a riot. They tried to kill Paul. It didn't work. You know, until God's done with you, there's nothing the devil can do to you. Amen? And so nothing happened to him. And now the missionary journey continues. It says, verse uh, 1, chapter 20, After the uproar ceased... Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. 
When he had gone through those regions, he had given them much encouragement. He came to Greece. Greece is where Corinth is. Antioch and, and uh, Macedonia, where he was traveling, these were the churches that he started on his second missionary journey. You'll remember Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth. These places where Paul visited and he planted churches. He's traveling through that region, encouraging them, it says. It says he spent three months there, that's in Corinth, and a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria. And so now he's, he's, he had been heading west. He's going to head back east towards Jerusalem. He's planning on going the, the fast way so that he can be there by Passover. But when this plot is discovered by these Jews that are trying to kill him, possibly on the boat they were trying to kill him, possibly they were trying to make him like Jonah part two and throw the prophet overboard, I don't know. Nevertheless, the plot was uncovered and Paul decides not to, to travel back by sailing but instead to uh, travel back by land, up again through Macedonia. And it says, it tells his companions that are with him, Sopater the Berean, son of Phyrus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the, the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. I don't know where these people get these names from. Um, I, I don't know why there's never like a Bill or a Bob or a Tom in here, but I think I should get an award just for being able to read these names in the book of Acts. This, anyway, this is Paul's uh, traveling companions, all of his uh, people that were traveling with him back to Jerusalem. It says this, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, that is the Passover, and, five, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Now listen to this story that happens in Troas. On the first day of the week, the first day of the week is Sunday, the Lord's Day, we were gathered together, the church came together in Troas, to break bread, that's to partake of communion, and that Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day. So Paul and his band are leaving the next day. But Paul prolonged his speech until midnight. That's a long church service. Amen? I tried to do that in the first service. I don't, some of you got here on time, I mean early, and you saw that the first service was still going. I was trying to go to midnight, but we didn't quite make it. Paul preached until midnight, and there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. So lots of people crammed into a small space, gathering. It's very late at night. They're, they're gathering by these oil lamps that are sucking the oxygen out of the room. Lots of people crammed into a small space. Uh, smoke going up everywhere. And it says that uh, there was a young man there on the third story and that his name was Eutychus. And he went and sat in the window. No doubt he was trying to get some fresh air and he sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. That's an eventful church service. 
But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him up in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts today. Lord, you've called us to be salt and to be light, to live as your representatives in the world. Lord, not of the world, but in the world, to be lights, to be a blessing. Lord, help us through our time in your word to draw us closer to yourself, to make your plan for us even more clearer. Lord, that we would see you in your glory and your splendor, that we would live in light of the work you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the point of this story is that you should not fall, in, uh, fall asleep in church. Obviously. Obviously, that's the point of the story. Uh, but before I get to that, I, I do want to make mention of a couple of, of, of just factoids for um, all the Bible nerds in here. And I know we got a lot of Bible nerds because we all raised our Bible today. The first is that this passage in Acts 20 is the first mention that we have of believers gathering for worship on the first day of the week. You see, up until this point, and as, as Christianity first began as a part of, of Judaism, Jesus, of course, the Jewish Messiah, the Savior of the world, that God's people had been gathering for worship on the sixth or the seventh day, rather, the Sabbath day. But very soon, God's people began to gather for worship on Sunday, not Saturday. On the first day, not the seventh day. And the reason why is because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. And as we gather for worship as God's people, we gather to celebrate the victorious, all-powerful, conquering King of kings and Lord of lords who rose from the dead on the third day to give life to all who would believe upon him. That is why we gather that is why we gather on the first day. Now, there are those who still teach that Christians should worship on the seventh day and that we shouldn't gather on the first day. And they wrongfully teach that this was something that started hundreds of years after Christ. Yet here we see in the Bible that it started even while the apostles were still alive. That they came together and they gathered together on the first day to worship, to receive God's word, and to break bread, the taking of the Lord's Supper together. In, Rome, in uh, the, the last book of the Bible, in uh, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10, the Apostle John says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And so even we see Sunday, the first day of the week, has been given this name, has been given this title of the Lord's Day. And every Sunday, every first day of the week for the believer 
It should be a day that we stop, that we pause, that we reflect on, and that we remember, yes, the death of the Lord Jesus for our sin, but also his victorious resurrection to give us new life. Amen. And so even in my family, we, we very rarely use the word Sunday, and instead we refer to Sunday as what the Bible calls it, as the Lord's Day. It's the Lord's Day. Every Sunday is the Lord's Day. And so we gather as God's people on the Lord's Day as they did in the New Testament. Also, I want to point out to you that this resurrection that Paul does, that God raises this young man from the dead, that they, they take him up dead. He falls down. We don't know how he dies. I can assume he broke his neck, falling from the third story. When he hits the ground, he is dead. When Paul falls upon him and takes him up, he comes back to life. He's miraculously healed. This is a resurrection. And with this miracle... Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, he completes for us the parallel miracles between Peter and Paul. Luke records parallel the miracles of Peter and the miracles of Paul. And so, for example, uh, when Peter and the disciples are gathered together for a time of prayer in Acts chapter 5 or Acts chapter 4, it says that the place where they were was shaken, that the place shook. Well, when Paul and Silas are in jail and they're praying and they're worshiping, a great earthquake comes and it shakes the, earth, the, the jail that they're at. All throughout Peter's miracles, Peter heals a lame man from his, who was lame since birth. Paul raises up a lame man who had been lame since birth. Peter in jail, his, his chains fall off of him. Paul in jail, his chains fall off of him. And finally here we see just as Peter had been used by God to raise Tabitha from the dead in Acts chapter 9, here, Eutychus is raised from the dead in Acts chapter 20. And what Luke has been doing for us is he's been authenticating for us the ministry of Paul that he truly is one of God's chosen apostles. And he's put Paul's ministry on display for us to help us see that and to see this clearly. Now, I want to jump back up to this first section, uh, talking about Paul and his traveling companions with all of these people's names that you can barely pronounce, it tells us something interesting because in Acts chapter 19, it says that Paul is headed to Jerusalem. Now from Ephesus, which is in Turkey, heading to Jerusalem, you have to go to the east. But Paul leaves Ephesus, heading to Jerusalem, but he goes west. Now if you're going to Jerusalem... You have to head east. Why does Paul head west? Well, one reason it tells us is that he went to encourage these churches that he had started. Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth. He went back to them. It wasn't like today where you could pull out your phone, push a button, have a FaceTime, do a Zoom call, send an email, send a text, send a message. It wasn't like that in Paul's day. To communicate took a lot of time. You could write a letter, maybe it would get there, maybe it wouldn't. To really encourage someone, you had to be face-to-face. -face. You had to spend time together. You had to go through the expense, through the time, the travel. And Paul is willing to do that, and he does it. And so it says that he went there and that he encouraged them. And you will remember that these places, all of them, were places that Paul had to leave under threat of his life being taken from him. 
Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica, all of these places, there were plots made on his life. Again, in Corinth, there's another plot being made to kill him. And the, the persecution that arose against Paul, when Paul would leave, it would then be turned towards the believers, to the church, to, to the people who had been converted. All of that hatred for God and for Christ was then now directed at God's people. And so Paul now, it's been three years since he started these churches. He heads back there to encourage them, literally to pour courage into them, to strengthen them in their faith and in their walk with the Lord. And so he travels through. That's one thing that he's doing. But a second reason, and this is the reason why he's headed in the opposite direction. So to go to Jerusalem, you have to go east. He's heading west. But he's still on his way to Jerusalem. And what he's doing... Luke doesn't tell us, but Paul tells us in his other letters, is that he's collecting a, an offering of blessing and relief for the church that is in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem at this time was undergoing extreme hardship because of persecution and also because of a famine that was in that region at the time. And so a famine is, is depression. A famine is like a huge economic collapse, recession. The crops didn't grow, the food is scarce, work is nowhere. I mean, it's literally like the Great Depression of the 1920s. And these people didn't have a lot to begin with. Most of the people in first century lived hand to mouth. What they made that day, they would take it, they would spend it to buy their food for that night. If they didn't work that day, they didn't eat that night. That's how people lived. And so... These people, because of the famine, are, are in very much need. They are almost at the point of destitution. And so what Paul does is he comes up with this idea, led by the Holy Spirit, to raise an offering from the Gentile churches, the, the Gentiles, those who weren't Jewish, and to, to go to them because they were not under a famine, and to raise funds for the, the Jewish church, the, the, the believers where the church had started, all of these Gentile churches had, in essence, come from that home base in Jerusalem, that all of these Gentiles would then raise an offering to send relief and support and to be a blessing of encouragement to these believers who were suffering. We don't read about that here in Acts chapter 20, but we do read about it. If you flip forward with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul writes about this offering that he's collecting, and he, he lets the church in Corinth know, hey, I'm coming back by through there, and this is what's happening in Jerusalem, and let's be raising an offering to be a blessing to them. And so Acts chapter 16, starting in verse, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, starting in verse 1. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you too are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you, again, the first day of the week, as they come together to worship, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. When I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. 
And so here Paul is saying, look, I'm coming. I, I, this is what's happening in Jerusalem. We need to raise an offering to help support what's going on there. And I don't want you to wait until I come to take the offering. Let's get going on this so that when I come, I don't have to be raising all of these offerings. And instead, you can send someone, a representative from your church, who will go with me and take your offering to Jerusalem to be a blessing to the believers that are in need there. And again, in the first part of this passage, we read the, people, we read the names of the people who accompanied Paul to Jerusalem. At least we did our best in reading their names. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, if you flip forward a couple more pages with me in your Bibles, Paul again in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 dedicates two whole chapters of his letter to the church in Corinth, again to this issue of raising this offering. I'm not going to read to you all of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, although... If I wanted to follow the apostolic example and preach till midnight, it would certainly be a good place to start. But we have church in Fredericksburg at 2 o'clock, and so you guys are off the hook once again. I can go to midnight there. I have permission from everyone, everyone to go to midnight in Fredericksburg? Okay, great. Awesome. There, there will definitely be some people falling asleep there. That happens at 2 o'clock anyway. Okay, um... Verse, uh, chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So remember, Paul's traveling through Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. He's on his way down to Corinth. He says, I want to tell you about what these churches did as I'm on my way now down to you. Paul and Corinth, they had a strained relationship for reasons I don't have time to get into today. But Paul had fallen out of favor with the church in Corinth because of lies that had been spoken about him by false apostles. And Paul had worked very hard to rebuild the relationship, but while the relationship was strained, this offering collecting had stopped. And so now as the relationship has been restored, Paul writes back to them and encourages them to begin with this raising of these, this special relief offering again. So he says, I want to tell you about what the churches of Macedonia did. For in a severe test of affliction, remember the churches in Macedonia are being persecuted severely. Not so much in Corinth, but we know Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, they were definitely under intense persecution. He says, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. He says, even though they're afflicted, even though they're impoverished, even though they're being persecuted, all of that produced joy and generosity in their hearts. It says, verse 3, that they gave according to their means. And I can testify that they gave beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Here what Paul says is that they were giving so generously, even though them, them, they themselves are not well off, they're not wealthy, they're not well-to-do, 
by our standard of living, we would say these are third world. I mean, so little that they have compared to how we live and that we're thankful for. I hope that we're thankful for. Amen. But they gave and gave and gave and gave according to their means at first. And then they even began to give beyond their means. Well, how did they do that? How do you give beyond their means? Well, they didn't have American Express or MasterCard, so they weren't just swiping the credit card going into debt to give. That's not what they were doing. To give beyond their means meant that they began to sell their possessions, to sell what little left that they had to take part in blessing this church that was suffering in Jerusalem. That even they maybe even began to work extra jobs, second and third jobs, to have more funds to be able to give more, giving beyond their means. Paul says, he goes on to say that this is not what we expected, that they were begging us, begging us to take the funds, to take the offering. I could see Paul and his companions saying, you guys have given enough You've worked hard enough. You you, you have nothing left to give. And they're saying, we want to give more, please. We want to be a blessing to those who are hurting. Paul says, this is not what we expected. It was surprising. It was shocking, this level of generosity. But, he says, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. That's the pattern. First, we give ourselves to the Lord, and then we give of ourselves to others. He goes on to say that you, verse 7, you Corinthians, you excel in everything. We know by reading 1 Corinthians that they they were very heavy in the use of spiritual gifts. They, they were a gifted church. They were a blessed church. And Paul says, you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you. Now see that you excel also in this act of grace. So you excel in these other spiritual things. Let yourself also excel in giving. Verse 8, he says, I say this not as a command but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. Paul says, this isn't a command from the Lord. I'm not putting on you some sort of legalistic burden that you have to do this. But if your love is true and if your love is genuine and you truly do love God and you truly do love God's people, stir up that affection in your heart and prove your love by the genuineness of your offering. So, he says, for you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Verse 24, so give proof before the churches of your love. Verse 6 of chapter 9, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God 
loves a cheerful giver. Paul is on the way collecting this relief offering and these churches in Macedonia, though they have so little, they give it all to be a blessing. Their hearts are so overcome with love. And this is what giving is all about. Giving is about love. They, and Paul encourages them to follow in the pattern of the gospel of Jesus, though he was rich, that he became poor so that we might share in his riches. John says that God so loved the world that he gave. That true love produces this giving, this serving, this sacrificing, this selflessness in your heart. Amy Carmichael, who was a missionary uh, in the mid of the last century, she was a single woman. She went to India as a single woman, as a missionary. She started an orphanage and a ministry to the poorest of the poor by herself. She was in India for 55 years, never once leaving the country, never once taking a break. When asked about her ministry of charity and generosity to the poorest of the poor, Amy Carmichael said this, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. You can give without loving. You know, this is the time of the year where every time you go shopping, there's somebody out there with a bell and a red basket. And it's so easy to just pull out a couple dollars or change or whatever and just drop it into the bucket. That's giving without loving. You don't know who it's going to. You don't know where it's going. You just, you know what? I'm just going to help out a little bit here. You never even give it a second thought. That's giving without loving. You can give without loving. But you truly cannot love without giving. You see, we live in a culture that has this concept of love that is so distorted, that is so perverted, that is so false. Our world thinks that love is all about getting. All about what can you do for me? If you can make me happy, then I will love you. And we live in this culture that thinks that, you know, everybody sits on their own throne and, and everybody else is supposed to bow down and worship them and attend to their every single need. But that's not love. That true love is service. True love is demonstrated. The Bible says that God shows, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. When we had nothing to give him, when we had nothing to offer, when we had no way to repay him, he still came and died to redeem us. That is love. We could never repay God. We could work our whole lives trying to pay him back and we would never scratch the surface of the sacrifice of his love that he demonstrated for us. And so giving now, we don't give to pay him back, but we give because he has loved us and we love him and he calls us to love others and we follow his example. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. And so us right now as a church, we're in the middle of raising an offering, much like the apostle Paul was doing. He was going to send this offering on to be a blessing to those who were in need. 
This missions offering that we're raising, our missionaries are out there. They're doing great work. It's a time of need in the countries that they're working in. Many people, many of the, most of the countries of the world are not doing as well as the United States is doing right now. Especially some of the countries that struggle so much with poverty. This is an opportunity we have to be a blessing to brothers and sisters all around the world. And what I want you to see is, as we raise this missions offering, this isn't just some idea that the elders came up with. This isn't just some thing that we thought we'd throw at the wall. This is the biblical pattern for Christian living, is that we give to those who are in need and that we support the ministries of those who are advancing the kingdom of God and the gospel. This is the biblical pattern pattern and I hope you can see that here now as we get on to Paul preaching all night and Eutychus falling out of the window I can certainly understand why he was struggling to stay awake the first day of the week was not a day off in the Roman Empire it was a work day so people had worked all day the church had worked all day and they had come together that evening, probably around 6, it says to break bread, to take the Lord's Supper together. And Paul begins to teach and to preach at the church, this church gathering in the third floor. 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock. Well, there's a song. Somebody should write that song. Um, 9 o'clock, right? Uh, all, all through the night, Paul preaches. All the way until midnight. And they haven't even taken communion yet. They haven't even got to the communion. This is just his communion introduction. Six hours long. And Eutychus, he can't breathe. The, the smoke, he's worked all day. He's tired. He's overcome with sleep. He goes to the window to try to get some fresh air. It's very stuffy in there. And he falls asleep. He falls asleep. Of course, he falls to his death. Again, don't fall asleep in church. I mean, it's a dangerous thing to do. I have no guarantees if you fall out of your seat and break your neck. I'm just, I'll come and try and pick you up, but I have no guarantees. I'm not the Apostle Paul. It's a dangerous thing. He comes back to life. It's this amazing miracle. The church celebrates. Finally, they take communion at midnight. And instead of dismissing them, all right, it's midnight, guys. Why don't we go home? We can try and catch a little bit of sleep before we got to get up. Paul keeps going. 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. The, the wonderful thing is they didn't have watches. They didn't have clocks. The sundial was, wasn't working because the sun wasn't up. He preaches until sunrise. Paul literally preaches for 13 hours. They took a little bit of break for resurrection and communion, and then they come back at it. It's incredible. And sometimes we struggle to make it through an hour-long church service. You know why Paul didn't stop? 
because these people were hungry for the word of God. They were hungry. They were open. They were receiving. They wanted more and more and more. Paul's leaving the next day. He's out of here. He doesn't, they don't know if he'll, they'll ever see him again. They're so hungry for the word of God. And we, we look at this and we say, this is amazing. How could these people sit there for so long? I mean, I couldn't do that. I couldn't sit there for so long and watch a guy preach. Yet there are so many people who have no problem watching a TV show for hours on end. We actually have a term for it. What, what was it? You know what it is. It's called binge watching. This is binge watching here. If you can binge watch The Office for the 40th time, you could certainly endure a 13-hour sermon. Now, again, don't worry. We have, we have church in, at 2 o'clock in Fredericksburg, so I, I, can't, I can't do that today. But if ever there was a day where I had an excuse to preach extra long, it would be today. These people were hungry for the word of God. They were hungry. And we live in a day and age where we have such access, such unparalleled access to the word of God, to the Bible being taught, to the Bible being preached. And though we may come into church and, and though we may even stay awake with our eyes, there's a more dangerous kind of sleep that's being spiritually asleep. That's being awake with your eyes and awake with your mind, but being off somewhere else. Being so disinterested in what God is doing and what God is speaking and the word of God. That you're thinking about what time is kickoff and I wonder if I'll be able to swing by the grocery store on the way home to get the fajitas to have them ready before the cowboys play and you know, all the stuff. Or God forbid you, you pulled your phone out during worship or you pulled your phone out during the message and you, you were going to the open the Bible app. That's what you were going to do. That's what you told yourself. And then the next thing you know, you're on Facebook or you're browsing Instagram and the word of God is being preached, but you're tuned into what Kim Kardashian ate for breakfast. And it's a kind of spiritual slumber that's even more dangerous than just falling asleep. To be in the house of God, to be in the presence of God, to be with the people of God, to hear the word of God, and to just not even care. To just be checked out to just be ready to get back home so that you can finish the fourth season of whatever. As we head into the end of, of this year, it's been a, an interesting year. We've gone through a lot. Everybody has. As I've been you know, getting towards Thanksgiving and contemplating, thinking back over the things that I'm thankful for, the things I've seen God do, giving God thanks for what he's done in my life. I'm not just thankful in kind of a generic sense to the, to the force or the big guy in the sky, 
I'm thankful to God, the creator of heaven and earth. As I've been reflecting on, on, on that and, and just the events of this year and just how I've seen the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God and God's light breaking through in dark times. It's been amazing. I'm so grateful. So grateful. But this thought came to my mind and, and I've just been pondering on it and I've been convicted by it. And I thought, have I responded? Have, have me and my family, have we responded in 2020 to the events that have happened? Have we responded any differently than people who don't know God? Has our response been any different than people who are not filled with the Spirit, saved by the blood, redeemed, sanctified, walking in holiness? Are, are, have we been any different than our neighbors who are not walking with the Lord and who do not know the Lord? And I hope, I hope that it has been. I, I believe that it has been, but I, I began to be convicted began to be convicted about my own response to what's happened this year and, and even the, the, our church's response and, and the people of God within the church and the greater church at large. And I have to wonder, has our response been that different? Has the church really stood up in this time? Has the church really shined the light of Jesus in this dark time? Or, or do we just fall into the pattern of the rest of the world around us that's going through chaos? You know, I don't know if you know this, but in 2020, the average American is watching, streaming, consuming eight hours of television a day. Some of you are like, oh, I thought it was like 12 because that's what I'm doing. No, but anyway... Some of you are like, oh, good, I'm only doing five. I'm, I'm set. <laughs> That's the pattern of the world. That's the way the world responds. Or self-medicating, right? Have we responded any differently than the world? I'm not trying to bring a message of condemnation on, on, on anybody but what I am saying is, are we making progress? Are we taking steps? Has our walk with the Lord progressed in 2020 or have we taken steps back have we lost ground are we further away from the Lord than where we began this year maybe it was a year of two steps forward and one step back and one step forward and two steps back and two steps forward one step back three steps forward one step back maybe it was that kind of year for you but are you closer to the Lord today than when you were on January 1, 2020. I think it's something we ought to think about. I think it's something we ought to evaluate. Not as a way of condemnation on anybody, but as a way of saying, hey, let's not be sleepy Christians. Let, let's not be people who say we believe in God, but when the stuff of life hits the fan, we live and act like everybody else. God help us. I want to encourage you, each and every one of you. I know that we're not gathering as often as we typically would in times like this. But in your homes, in your own private time, dedicate time to the Lord in prayer. Spend 
time in prayer. Pray to God. God's people need to rise up and pray to intercede for the things that are happening in our country, for the things that are happening in our world. I believe that when God's people pray, that God hears and he answers our prayers. But if God's people are too busy streaming whatever, who's going to stand in the gap? Who's going to get on their knees before God? Who's going to put the stuff away, the silly things, the distractions, the things that don't matter, have no eternal value? Am I saying you have to throw your TV in the trash? Yeah, actually, that's what I'm saying. No, that's not what I'm saying. If you want to do that, I will support you 100%. But what I am saying is that we need to live life with the right priorities. That prayer, worship, the word, the community of believers, this is the priority for the people of God. It's not the news, it's not Netflix, it's not streaming XYZ season of who cares. It's God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We as God's people need to, at this point in the year, draw a line in the sand, push the reset button. I don't care if if you've lost so much ground in 2020 with the Lord. Today's a new day. Today's the day to take a step forward. Today's the day to move out of the nonsense and move into the future, into the destiny that God has for you. Amen. And your destiny, let me just tell you, your destiny is not going to come to you by streaming stuff online. Let, Let me just FYI. You will not fulfill the destiny God has for you by just sitting there as a potato being entertained. Okay? I'll get off of that now because I can tell I'm really pushing some people's buttons. Okay. I've still got Fredericksburg to go, so I'll really get them. The the people of God need to rise up. People of God need to stand up for righteousness, for his kingdom. Stand up with faith. Stand up in boldness. Stand up with the truth. We've got to get our eyes off of the nonsense of the world, the things that lull us to sleep, and to let the Holy Spirit wake us up for the things of God. I believe that every Christian should spend time in prayer every single day. If that looks like an hour in the prayer closet for you, that's great. If that looks like prayer without ceasing, like Paul talked about, all day, every day, that's typically what I do. Whatever. You need to be in prayer. You need to be asking the Lord. You need to be seeking God. If you're married, you need to pray with your spouse every day. At the beginning of the day. Start the day off right. Invite God into your marriage. Invite God into your family. If you have kids, you need to be praying with your kids every single day, the beginning of the day. And then at the end of the day, as you ask for their forgiveness for all the ways you messed up. So the, the, if you've never done this before, as you step out to do it, guess what? It's going to feel weird, just FYI. It's going to feel weird. Because the enemy is going to lie to you. He's going to say, what do you think you're doing? You think you're some sort of super spiritual person? You know who you are. You know you're a failure. You know you'll do it today, but you won't do it tomorrow. So don't even bother trying. These are the lies of the enemy to keep you in bondage. 
to stop you from moving forward, to stop you from using the weapons of our warfare, which are mighty, which are powerful, which can bring down strongholds, but we have to use them. Let me encourage you in love as your pastor, turn the TV off, open the Bible, get on your knees, spend time with your family, seeking God's face. That's what the people of God are called to do. And then get up from that and live with love in your hearts and service towards others and being a light in the community. Yeah, so what? You might not be able to talk about Duck Dynasty. Not Duck Dynasty. What was the thing with the Tiger Man? Tiger King, yeah. Some Tiger King show. I didn't watch it, but some people watched it. Some guy with a mullet who had a tiger. I don't know. So what? You might not be able to talk with people about that, but you can communicate them the eternal truths of God's word, which has the power to save their soul. All right, I do have to go to Fredericksburg. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. I'll share with you one final scripture, Ephesians chapter 5. Why don't we stand this morning? We don't want to be sleeping, sleepy Christians. Amen. We need to be awake. We need to shine the light of Christ. Listen to what Paul says. Ephesians chapter 5. Speaking of the dark days in which we live. He says, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. We need to ask God to shine the light and expose the darkness in our world right now. Right now. That's what we need to be praying right now. For the light to shine, for darkness to be exposed, for the truth to be exalted, and for there to be justice. We need to be praying for that right now. Verse 13. Anything that is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Verse 14, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. Look carefully, then, how you walk. Pay attention to how you live. Don't live as a foolish person. Don't be deceived. Don't be lulled to sleep. The darkness is trying to to, to suffocate out the light, but we have to wake up. Get on our knees. Open the book. Turn the TV off, pray with our spouse, pray with our kids, live a life filled with the Spirit, and shine the light of Jesus. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that, uh, that what's been shared today would go deep into our hearts. Lord, I know it is convicting. I know that at times, Lord, that when we come to your word, it is a sword and it does prick us. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us that you would uh, speak to us in such a way to be helpful to us. Lord, set us free from the, the patterns and the living and the thinking of this world. Lord, that we would not live like the world because we are not of the world, but you've called us to live in the world, shining your light. Thank you for each one that is here. 
I thank you for the blessing that they are. I thank you as they spend time with their friends and family uh, this week, Lord, that you will even give them opportunities to love, to share, to serve, to give. Lord, as you have loved, shared, served, and given unto us and to shine the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask for your special blessing upon us as we go out of here to be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand clap this morning.